We now read the profound passage in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, in our Bible lessons from the first epistle of John, where we find these words, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This passage obviously divides itself in a twofold way. Verse 1 has to do with the present advocacy of the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory. In verse 2 we have reference to the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ in the use of the word propitiation for our sins. And we will consider verse 2 in our present meditation. The word propitiation means a sin offering, an expiation, a covering of sins by means of a sacrifice, or a means of reconciliation. And we should notice that it refers to what the Lord Jesus Christ did for the sins of the whole world without any partiality whatever. It is the most glorious fact revealed in the Bible that God is a God of love and is willing to exercise mercy if at all this can be done consistent with his other obligations. The nature of the Godhead is entirely different from our nature, apart from divine grace. While we are naturally impetuous and vindictive against wrongs committed against us, God is entirely opposite in his frame of mind. For God in very essence is love. This is the glorious message to be heralded to all, that God abounds in a disposition to forgive as far as the inner nature of the Godhead is concerned, if certain other objections can be removed, or that God is not in any sense personally vindictive or retaliatory, but rather that his abounding love flows out towards sinners seeking to conquer their stubborn hearts and win them to a happy state of holiness. It is not a question of God's personal reaction to sin, for it must always be true that God resisted the proud and giveth grace to the humble, as we read in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. But it is affirmed to be the profound message of the Bible that the love of God so tempers this feeling of repulsion that God is disposed to return kindness for evil and at no time treats man like he deserves to be treated. Judgment and punishment is not primarily a personal reaction manifesting itself, but a divine necessity of moral government or an obligation that God imposes upon himself as the moral governor of the universe to protect righteousness and dispense justice. But if the nature of the Godhead is disposed to pardon and forgive, what problems confronted God as to the free exercise of mercy as he contemplated his kindness towards sinful man? What humanly insurmountable obstacles had to be removed before God could accept 
repentant sinners back into the great area of fellowship that had so carefully been planned for man's happiness. There appears to be a threefold imperative. First, some great tremendous measure must be substituted in the moral government of God that would accomplish the same function as the punishment of sinners would do. It must be laid down as a fact before all that sin cannot be committed without terrible consequences, and that these consequences will inerrantly follow every sin. If no sin shall escape proper treatment, then an indelible impression is made upon all moral beings to avoid sin. God has declared, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God cannot now declare, The soul that sinneth under certain conditions shall not die, without his moral government suffering a collapse. Thus it is imperative that something be done to uphold the moral government of God if God is to exercise the mercy and forgiveness that abounds in his great being. Secondly, it is of utmost importance to the state of respect required in moral government that the moral character of the ruler and dispenser of justice should be properly comprehended. God is the great moral example of the universe whose holiness is to be imitated by all who have been created in his moral image. We are to hate sin and disobedience with an unceasing and deadly hatred. God's inner hatred of sin must ever be before us. We can understand how dreadfully serious sin is regarded to be in the moral government of God by the consequences and threatened punishments that God has dealt out to all offenders. If these punishments are set aside by the mercy of God and forgiveness extended, what shall tell forth to the moral universe that God has not changed in his inner hatred toward sin, that his moral character is still one of love of righteousness and holiness and hatred of all disobedience, that God's great heart is still upset and broken by all who defy truth in unrighteousness, even as the prophet Ezekiel was instructed to declare in behalf of God, I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me. It is obvious that some great measure is needed here to stop the inflow of misconception of God's character when he reverses himself in mercy to declare that it is possible that the soul that sinneth shall live and not die eternally. Thus the moral character of God must be upheld in the exercise of mercy. Third, there is the inflated heart of man that must be dealt with and properly humbled. It is easy to see how this distorted condition has arisen. Before the cloud of sin was entered into, man lived before God, his great benefactor, a perfectly natural and unpretentious life. The great God was recognized for who he was. There was no question as to absolute authority and submission, no question as to God's character and word. God was good, and he did all things in a perfection of love. 
Man was not ashamed before his loving Creator. He had nothing to hide, and thus was perfectly willing to be what he was, and had no desire to be treated by any false standard. But, unbelievably and tragically enough, a state of rebellion against God and his loving will was entered into. Man lost his moral beauty and contentment and became ashamed before God and his fellow men. He no longer had any pleasure of conscience in what he was, and thus entered into a state of pretense, which the scripture calls pride. He not only pretends to be someone different than he is before God and others, but first of all before himself, in the recesses of the soul. Any endeavor on the part of God and true Christians to dislodge him from his false standard is violently resisted, and he holds down the truth in unrighteousness, as we read in Romans 1.18. The truth is showing itself forth from every angle, and man is having great difficulty maintaining his complacency in his false estimation of his own character. Only some great measure can succeed in humbling man, but thoroughly humbled he must be if the penalty of sin is to be set aside and man not take advantage of God when the fear of doom is relieved. Unless so humbled, man's false pride will become worse than ever. God's unalterable law, that he giveth grace to the humble and only to the humble, must be established. Thus a third great necessity of any wise program of mercy must be the utter prostration of man's proud heart or the deflation of his pride and arrogance. Man must be man and allow God to be God, and happily so. In view of these great requirements of any measure of mercy, we are now prepared to make some observations as to some of the expected characteristics of so great a dispensation of mercy. It must certainly first be an unlovely event, for it must have the same sobering effect upon the moral world as the eternal punishment of sinners would have. Sin is an exceedingly unlovely and tragic event. Thus, its antidote must likewise be an unlovely and a tragic event. The Lord Jesus Christ became thus the propitiation or sin offering for the sins of the whole world. Secondly, the atonement must be an event of great dignity and distinction, for it represents the dealings of God with man. It must not only be considered so by God, it must also be so recognized by man. Third, it must be an event of universal application, for God is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, as we read in 2 Peter 3.9. Again, it is affirmed that God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. Further, as Peter perceived, God is no respecter of persons, Acts 10.34. Thus, whatever God makes possible, he will certainly make possible equally for all. He can have no selected favorites as long as he is love or universally benevolent. But fourthly, an atonement must be an event marked by a simplicity of application. 
the application of the remedy must be within the reach of all, or it will fail of God's intended purpose toward all. With these considerations, we are prepared for an advance to declare that the glorious atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all these demands. It upholds the moral government of God. It reveals the inner hatred of the heart of God towards sin. It becomes a pile driver, so to speak, to humble man's proud heart so that he will be in a condition to be blessed of the presence of God without being elated in pride. It is thus that the great measure of the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ became an imperative necessity. And so the scripture simply declares that he, the Lord Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the blessed gospel. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for being able to declare a universal invitation. We thank thee that the Lord Jesus tasted death for the sins of the whole world, and now all men through repentance and faith may experience thy forgiveness and be truly reconciled to thee with the restoration of heavenly blessings in their souls at the present time and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.